For over 25 years, the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has promoted the idea that the free exchange of goods, services, and capital between peoples and societies is essential to individual liberty in a prosperous world. If you are an Acton alumnus, this November you are invited to join the Acton Institute at Capitalism, Free Trade, and Globalization, a Liberty and Markets Colloquium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This Socratic-based seminar is co-sponsored by Liberty Fund, Inc., and aims to connect capitalism, free trade, and globalization to morality. To register or learn more, visit acton.org events. That's A-C-T-O-N events. We think the gospel is way more exciting than libertarianism. And we want people to be just as excited to talk about Jesus and what they believe about salvation than talking about Ron Paul and whatever libertarian um, thing they're really excited about. So we do think that liberty in general is really important. But one thing that we're trying to get across is that freedom from the tyranny of sin is most important. The voice you just heard was Jacqueline Isaacs. Uh, she's today's guest on Radio Free Acton. Hey everyone, this is Dan Mijavar filling in for Mark Vandermoss this week on Radio Free Acton. We have a pretty good show lined up for y'all. Uh, we got uh, our own Jordan Ballard, Director of uh, Publishing and Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, uh, speaking to Jacqueline Isaacs, Fellow at the American Studies Program and Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. Uh, really great discussion. Uh, and. Uh, leading up to her visiting Grand Rapids uh, later on this week. Uh, August 17th, she'll be in downtown Grand Rapids at the New Holland Knickerbocker. So if you're in town, please come join us at 6 p.m. Following that, we have another amazing segment of Upstream with Bruce Edward Walker, where he's joined by Anita Chen, a 2017 summer intern, uh, and they can discuss War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, great reviews and great discussion abound. Uh, in that talk. But uh, without much further ado, let's go ahead and get on the show, starting with Jordan Beller and Jacqueline Isaacs. All this and nothing less on Radio Free Acton. I'm Jordan Baller. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute, and I'm joined by Jackie Isaacs, and we're here going to talk about her essay and an upcoming talk that she's doing here at Acton, Can I Be a Libertarian Christian? And it's part of a, a new volume that's come out called Call to Freedom, and the subtitle is Why You Can Be a Christian and a Libertarian. So I suppose that's the answer implicit in the question of Jackie's essay that's in the in the volume. Jackie, yeah, thank um, you, Jordan. yeah sure. Can you, I, I've, I've stolen all your thunder. There's nothing left to talk about for the, the, for the remainder of our time here. Um, can you describe a little bit about the journey that you've had exploring the relationship between these two things, libertarianism and Christianity? Sure, yeah. Um, that's a big part of the book, How to Be a Christian and Libertarian. It's not just about the philosophical arguments and the synthesizing of the faith with the political philosophy, but also about our individual journeys, trying to reconcile that and having conversations with those around us about being a Christian and a libertarian. So there's six of us involved in writing the book. Um, I wrote chapter one, uh, which was sort of a dubious task, um, <laughs> introducing my personal story and 
talking about how when I first entered sort of the policy space, my first job in Washington, D.C. was at a libertarian think tank in D.C., and I was the only Christian there. So in addition so, so far to the as you knew, of, so far as you knew, right? I mean, that's one of the dynamics that comes up, at least in Elise's right, emails, right. right? Um, the only Christian that was openly talking about my faith in the office place. Um, and that's part of the dynamics of the book as well, is, is not just can you be a Christian libertarian, but why aren't there more Christian libertarians out there? Why are there so many non-Christian libertarians and so many Christians who would not identify as libertarian, uh, even though they talk very favorably about liberty and, and believe in liberty, they, they wouldn't call themselves a libertarian. So that's part of the the journey here as well as figuring out why is this a, a strange thing to call yourself a Christian libertarian? Well, let, let's dig into the terminology a little bit. I have, a, I guess I have a question about that. Does it matter what you call yourself? Like as far as, is it a, is it Christian libertarian or libertarian Christian? Does it, does the modifier matter to you or does that signify something? We've been very careful um, in our writings to say libertarian Christian so that libertarian is modifying Christian. Uh, one thing we wanted to be very clear about, very definitive about, was that all of us involved in this project are Christians first and libertarians second in this context um, after being Christian. And one thing that we're consistent about throughout the book is that being a Christian is way more important to us, way more important to um, our argument than being a libertarian. And when we go around and we talk about this book, usually in libertarian settings, conferences, and places like that, one thing that we try and make clear to uh, the people that we're talking to is that we think the gospel is way more exciting than libertarianism. And we want people to be just as excited to talk about Jesus and what they believe about salvation than talking about Ron Paul and whatever libertarian um, thing they're really excited about. So we do think that liberty in general is really important, but one thing that we're trying to get across is that freedom from the tyranny of sin is most important. Amen to that. I, I, following up on that, I guess I, this is, so, you know, working at the Acton Institute for a number of years, I think, you know, maybe a similar sort of journey in some ways to, to some of the authors in the book. And this, I, I um, in college, identified as conservative, had never even heard of libertarianism as a thing, and I, th- I think until I went to undergrad. So it was a whole new category for me. I mean, I, I guess in that way, mirrors the experience of a lot of people. You don't have that. It's, it's a binary, right? Left, right, Democrat, Republican sort of a thing. Um, so libertarianism was a whole other kind of a thing. Um, and being a Christian first, and in fact, a Christian theologian, the relationship of those identities has always been very important to me. And one of the things that struck me is how robust libertarianism is presented in terms of its robustness as a as a political philosophy, like a, a lens through viewing the world, is it more than that? Is it a, what you know you might call a whole world and life view? So can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yes, we do talk about that in the book. We define libertarianism in our book using um, a definition by economist Walter Block, um, who says libertarianism is a political philosophy that is concerned solely with the proper use of force. There's a chapter, I think it's chapter three in the book, written by Taylor Barkley, 
that addresses the dynamic between libertarianism versus libertinism. And libertinism would be more that whole life philosophy that I don't want to be restricted by anything. And Taylor really breaks apart, yes, that is probably not consistent with the gospel. Because as Christians, we are taking ownership of saying, like, I do want my life to be restricted by the lordship of Christ. And in that, I find freedom. So that that pure libertinism, that sort of Ayn Rand philosophy, probably is not consistent with Christianity. But that's not necessarily what the political philosophy of libertarianism is. We focus our argument very specifically on um, the proper use of force by the government. And even among the authors, we have a wide variety of libertarian perspectives. One of the authors, uh, the author of Chapter 2, Jason Huey, um, identifies as a full-on anarchist. A way to those of us that you know just think the government, like a much, much smaller government, would be better. So we represent a wide variety. Okay, so this is, this is one of the key kind of... Yeah, I'd love I'd love to hear you talk about what you think the kind of characteristics I hate to say litmus tests are, but what would define a a non anarchist libertarian from a pro market conservative on the one hand, and then to follow up on that, what what defines is there something that unites libertarian anarchist libertarians from those who see a legitimate if limited role for for governmental coercion? Well, I'm definitely planning on going into that a little bit more at. Acting on tap. So anybody in the Grand Rapids area or within driving distance um, on August 17th, come here at Jackie Talk. I'm planning on being there for sure. So I guess sort of the, the quick thumbnail version is going back to that idea of what is the proper use of force. We would say the big difference between libertarianism and uh, traditional free market conservatism um, is sort of this is more of a consistent ideology about limiting the use of force that the a libertarian would agree to far fewer things that a conservative would that to say that the government needs to come in and force behavior in this certain respect that freedom uh, of behavior and freedom in the economy and political freedom that these are all very interconnected and you you can't consistently say that the government should force behavior in one area and not force behavior in the other area. Now, one thing that, again, we're very clear on is that that's just a statement about what government should and shouldn't do. What we say about people, it's very fair and definitely part of the church's calling to, to give direction about what people should and shouldn't do. And it's, it's part of our calling as individuals to seek out from, from the Bible, from church, uh, what our behavior should and should not be like. Just that that shouldn't come from the government. Okay, so there's a, a, a working distinction there between legality and morality, which is a very important mm-hmm. one. I, I certainly, I, I'm glad to hear you mention that because it's it's one that often gets conflated. Um, does it run parallel to a distinction between libertarianism and libertinism? So that if you know, as a political philosophy, libertarianism is arguing about. Uh, the limits of legal legality, basically the legal limits of, of conduct versus a libertinism, which would also say there's sort of very few, if any, moral limits to conduct. It's also about self-determination. Right. Um, and, we, and the chapter about the distinction between libertarian and libertinism goes into that um, much more in depth and talks about you know coercion as something that people do versus coercion as something that the government does. 
um, and digs into that distinction a little bit more about is it appropriate, something that an individual does, us to coerce our friends to behave differently, for, for God to be coercing us to be behaving according to the Bible. Uh, those things are different than the government doing it. So it, it teased out a little bit more uh, in depth in chapter three. So one of the, let's circle back to the, the, the Christianity um, and its relationship to libertarianism uh, dynamic. One of the things that I really appreciate about the chapter in, your, in the volume was your presentation of, of what's been called a four-chapter gospel. Can you just say a little bit about that and the relationship between that and liberty, how liberty fits into the four-chapter gospel in your, in your understanding? Yeah, so um, in my chapter, chapter one, I lay out, like you mentioned, the four-chapter gospel, and the, the, quick, the four points of the four-chapter gospel are um, creation, fall, redemption, and uh, consummation. And the reason why we wanted to talk about this right in chapter one, right in the beginning, is that by talking through this, this framework of how you can understand this, you know, the, to- the total theology of what the Bible says and how it involves our lives, um, we really wanted to lay out a clear presentation of the gospel right in chapter one. Again, knowing that a lot of people who may not be Christians but are trying to figure out how to talk about libertarianism to their Christian friends, or maybe people that aren't as confident in their faith um, and are trying to figure out how to be a Christian and a libertarian. We wanted to make sure there was a very clear statement of theology about the gospel and salvation right in chapter one. So we dig through creation, looking back at how um, we were created in the image of God and what that means about our creative potential and how people can add value, um, economic value, value to society, uh, that people were made to, to create, um, and how that has all kinds of economic implications. Uh, but then there's the fall, the second part, that we are doing so imperfectly now, that we are not perfect reflections of God's image anymore. Um, and this has a lot of what we would say political implications that, you know, this is where people start calling for laws. And those of us who aren't anarchists would agree that this is where, this is why we need some laws and rule of law. This is why we have, um, we have governments, right? Yeah. Keep order in society. But it's also a good reminder that because people are sinful, we need to be cautious of how much authority we give our leaders, how much authority we give people who are in government, because they are also sinful and fallen people as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point, right? But then not to spend too much time on the bad news, uh, we do go into salvation, um, that the work that we do here and what we do in society is, is not all for loss, that there is a way to be reconciled with God, and then ultimately looking forward to uh, when Christ returns, the, the sort of eternal significance of what we're doing. That's a that's a really great summary of the dynamic. It, we're here in West Michigan. One of the people I work on is Abraham Kuyper, who was uh, didn't use the language of four chapter gospel, but you certainly, to some degree, developed and popularized this kind of to- totalizing understanding of the presentation of scripture on these themes. And so I, I, I found that really refreshing. It, in your piece, and I thought an effective way to open up the volume. Um, I guess as a final question, I'd like to ask about the audience for this book, and especially we've seen things, I think, in the last few years, um, various polls and other things about the attraction of different kinds of ideologies among the youth 
So I'm not necessarily asking you to speak on behalf of the youth, but what you know, what's going on uh, among Christians and especially young Christians from your perspective with respect to questions of political economy? Um, is there kind of an, an attraction to socialism that you can see, or are there counter trends, or or and is is this book intended to address that sort of a dynamic? Yeah, well, it's definitely a big question. There is a lot. I mean, we talk about libertarianism versus conservatism, but the Christian left is also, as you point out, very real and growing uh, percentage of of young Christians in the church. Um, so while this book isn't directly addressing those that would identify as, as being in the Christian left, um, we do hope that it helps young adults that are more freedom-minded to be better equipped with theology, um, to have those conversations on their college campuses with people of all other you know, political backgrounds, conservative or liberal. The reason why we wrote the book, so again, I'll, I'm happy to go into more of the, the history and the backstory, the origin story of where the book came from, um, but there's six of us that contributed to this project, and we wanted to have these conversations but we kept being asked for a good resource or something that, you know, my friend's not here at this event with us, but I really want to talk to him about being a Christian and a libertarian. Um, what book would you recommend for us to take to them? And we could think of a lot of really, you know, large economics textbooks or really great, you know, theologians to read. Um, but we couldn't put our hands on something that was addressed specifically for a young adult or a college student to have a conversation about their faith and political freedom. Um, so we decided that that's, that must mean we need to write it. And so our, our goal through this was to, to scale that conversation beyond what the six of us can do individually, for this to be a conversation starter amongst um, young adults and their conservative family members or young adults on their college campus. Um, we've been really encouraged since the book came out earlier this year to hear some of those stories. There was a libertarian think tank here in Washington, D.C., where I am right now, that they used this book amongst their staff reading group, and they worked through a chapter a week um, over a couple months talking about how they could better communicate with Christians on their staff and Christians in their audience using our book. So we're, we're starting to hear these stories of how people have been able to use it as a really great conversation piece. And you've, you've read it. I mean, we sort of bear our souls and tell our stories um, in each of our chapters. And uh, it's, it's, our hope is that we can, if I can't personally be there and talk to these people, um, that we can have these conversations through the book. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to be joining you guys in a couple of weeks and actually on tap to have this conversation. Well, we are, yeah, we are excited to have you for sure. That is going to be August 17th here in Grand Rapids at the Knickerbocker. The doors open at 6 p.m. There's a, there's what they call the Zeppelin Lounge, which I think you'll be, uh, it's a fantastic venue and a fantastic speaker. So we're really looking forward to having you, Jackie, to come talk about why you can be a, liber a Christian and a libertarian and answering that question, can I be a libertarian Christian? Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. And um, thank you. Keep up the great work. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and at Upstream, 
culture is always far ahead of politics, which is far, far, far downstream. Today, I am talking to Anita Chen, who is a erstwhile Acton intern, and we are going to discuss the new movie, War for the Planet of the Apes, which is the third of three prequels to the Charlton Heston opus, and I think we'll uh, politely forget the Tim Burton version from uh, 20 years ago or so. So, hello, Anita. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Terrific. Okay, you saw the movie, I saw the movie, and I, I have a, a two thumbs up for it. I thought it was absolutely uh, an absolutely fantastic retelling of Apocalypse Now. There are allusions to it all over the place, but uh, I'm not sure if uh, you're old enough to remember that film, but it was Probably deeply not. impactful <laughs> of my generation. So anyway, give us a little bit of background of this movie. It was directed by Matt Reeves, who also directed uh, the film before that. Uh, Woody Harrelson stars as the commander. Andy Serkis is back as Caesar, and uh, who is the uh, ape that is kind of torn between the, the world of uh, his former friends in the human race and trying to take over, trying to keep hold of the ape race the simian race that is more or less being uh, dragged in two different directions. One is being peaceful, the other one is being warlike. And in this movie, it turns out that uh, they are a lot of the apes are confined to a gulag. Yeah, so I think the backdrop of the movie is there's a simian flu uh, that infects both humans and the apes. And what it does to the apes is it makes them very intelligent, uh, more and more human-like. But for the humankind, what it's been seen to do is it actually reduces their intelligence, not necessarily at an emotional level, but it's seen that many of the humans that are infected with the virus can no longer speak. So the beginning of the movie starts out with this war scene, and you can tell very clearly that it's the humans against the apes. You're not really sure what the motivation is, but you can clearly see that they're pitted against one another. The movie goes on and you find that there's a dedicated group of commanders um, that's led by the colonel. They're called Alpha Omega and their entire purpose is they want to remove the apes. And the colonel here is very motivated because he feels that if the ape race is allowed to continue and develop and become more intelligent and the human race continues to de-evolve, then the ape race will come and take over the human race and human race will eventually become the ape's cattle. They're very motivated to go against these apes. And that's kind of the background of the story. Um, I don't know how much more you wanted to me to share. Well, no, I, I, I think that that's a good summation of, of where the movie is. And, and essentially what happens is that uh, the sentient simians are a product of human activity. But once they attain uh, sentience, the human race attempts to take them out. And uh, so it, it's kind of the classic uh, Frankenstein case of where Dr. Frankenstein creates, takes it upon himself to create life in and of itself and then uh, essentially has to go to war against the monster that he created. And uh, it, it's not, the Boris Karloff monster was actually a pretty decent fella that uh, just kind of uh, 
was a victim of his own was the, a victim of circumstances, whereas uh, the Simeons are kind of put in the same boat. So you're you're following some pretty traditional science fiction tropes, but uh, I I also think that it has uh, many positive and interesting things to say about this day and age. Right. Would you agree? Yeah, I absolutely would. One thing that struck me most about the movie is this colonel and this group of people that he's he's leading and he's commanding. It was interesting to me because the colonel uh, was so against this de-evolution of humans through the simian flu that when his own son caught the simian flu, he was willing to kill his own son because he didn't want this flu to continue to spread. And um, there's another group of humans that believe that there is a, a medical cure, but the colonel believes otherwise, and he goes so far as to, number one, kill his own son, but number two, kill his own soldiers. And there's a point in the movie where Caesar, the leader of the apes, confronts the colonel about this. And it was really interesting to me how the colonel described his motivations. Um, what he basically said was, well, we're going to become your cattle. We're not going to be intelligent anymore. But when he described his son, uh, he described how even though his son was could no longer speak, his son still looked at him with trust. Um, and to me, that human emotion and that spiritual element is what makes us human, regardless of whether or not we're able to speak. We are humans, and because we're humans, we're inherently valuable. But the colonel didn't see it that way, and he was willing to go to great lengths to prove that to be the case. And uh, there's, a, there's a pivotal point in the film uh, where the colonel himself actually becomes susceptible to this flu, and he himself no longer can speak. And at this point, Caesar is again confronting him. Um, Caesar had the chance to take this colonel's life, uh, but he chose not to. And I thought that that was, that was a very human element. But this colonel, who was so set on this idea that humans are only valuable if they can speak, if they have higher thinking, or if they're productive, he was so set on this idea that he actually committed suicide because he himself no longer can speak. So to me, it was almost this this following of this idea, this mindset, this worldview, that if we reduce people to only their units or their value of production, we no longer see them as human beings. We only see them as cattle, as the colonel would say. Something utilitarian. Yeah, very utilitarian. And I think, I mean, that's been a place of learning for myself too, just understanding how human beings are valuable because of being human beings. There's that's right. nothing they have more to value. it. Yeah, yeah. And and that's why um, you know, a child that hasn't been born yet is just as valuable as a child that has been born. Somebody who with a disability is just as valuable as someone who doesn't have a disability. By the very virtue of being human, these people are valuable and precious. And these are very powerful themes. Yeah, yeah. And and that was one thing that stuck out to me in the film and it was it was very interesting how we saw the colonel have this mindset follow out with his actions this mindset uh, i.e killing his own son killing his own soldiers and ultimately taking his own life uh, because he believed in these values and it was uh, it was a um, very very revealing a very eye-opening movie for me terrific well anita chen 
thank you so much for joining us today. That's all we have time for today for Upstream this week. My name is Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you soon. come again to the end of another Radio Free Acton. Thank you so much for joining us here and as we've uh, discussed lots of good thoughts and uh, lots of great ideas. Special thanks to Jordan Baller, Director of Publishing and Senior Research Fellow of the Acton Institute, as well as Jacqueline Isaacs, Fellow of the American Studies Program and the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. Uh, if you're in the Grand Rapids area or near the Grand Rapids area, uh, remember that on August 17th at 6 o'clock p.m. in the New Holland Knickerbocker Brewery, uh, we'll be having a discussion with Jacqueline. Uh, please come join us. Uh, register at acton.org slash events. Uh, it'll be a, a good time and a good good discussion. I'm sure more, even more than what we were able to uh, get into today. Uh, thanks also to Anita Chen, uh, 2017 summer intern. Uh, she did a great job discussing. As well as uh, Bruce Edward Walker, uh, once again, for hosting another great segment uh, upstream. If you enjoyed the show, go ahead and let us know. Uh, leave a comment below or uh, subscribe and share uh, Radio Free Acting with, uh, with friends, family, and whoever else you might think uh, would enjoy uh, this podcast. This has been Daniel Benjavar. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time. Want to stay up to date on all things Acton? Visit Acton.org today to learn about our resources. While you're there, remember to subscribe to Acton Notes, the free Acton newsletter, to get the latest news, blog posts, and event updates. By bringing together religion and business founded on sound economic principles, the Acton Institute fulfills its mission to promote a free and virtuous society. Again, you can subscribe today at acton.org.